Let's turn to our scripture for today. It is Matthew 18, uh, verse 21 to 35. Now, we've done this two, two weeks ago, and we thought it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for us to just do one session on forgiveness. So we're going to do this again. We're going to continue on. Pastor Bill will give a, a message on forgiveness. Title is Forgiveness Asked and Offered. Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. This is the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master de delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Good morning. Good to be with you. As I said a couple weeks ago, we are taking a few weeks this summer to cover various different topics uh, before we head into the fall. I very much appreciated Pastor Dan Hyun last week coming and challenging us on what does it mean to be successful in God's eyes. We all know what it means to be successful out in the larger world, but what does God think success is? I think that's really important for us in the Philadelphia suburbs, which is why our prayer and prep day is going to focus on that with the specific goal of asking for those who serve in the church, what does it mean for us to serve successfully, to minister successfully in Christ's church? That's August 27th. If you got an invitation, please plan to be here for that day uh, as we continue thinking about these things together. Today, as Pastor David said, I want to go back and pick up on forgiveness again. We've been talking about relationships and recognizing specifically that in this world, relationships are hard. You only ever find yourself now relating with people on a, who on a pretty consistent basis are not the best that they could be. We relate to people who don't always do what's beneficial, but who often do what's harmful, 
harmful to themselves, harmful to other people. Or as I summarized two weeks ago, in a broken world, you only ever engage broken people. Broken people who sin, broken people who sin often and who will often sin against you. Which means that every single day you have an amazing opportunity. You will have countless opportunities, unlooked for, unasked, to be an agent of redemption. Opportunities to make a difference in this world, to live out your faith in a very substantial way that will literally change the world for the people you engage with. You have the opportunity to enter into some of the evil that you experience and engage it with God's power and with his intentions to help heal broken relationships by learning to forgive those whose brokenness impacts you. You have the opportunity to take what Satan meant for evil and help produce from it what God means for good. And you need to enter into that kind of hard work because your only other alternative from today's passage is to take Peter's route in verse 21 and try to limit how much you have to forgive someone else. Now the end result of Peter's strategy is that it will limit how long you have friends before you cut them off and you move on to someone else and then start counting again how many times you have to forgive them before you cut them off as well. You start to realize that in a broken world, you will either help restore broken relationships or you'll contribute to breaking them even more. And the longer that I follow Christ, the more I see how central forgiveness is. Not just central to God's relationship with me, but central to my relationship with everybody else. So two weeks ago, we looked at what is it that motivates you to forgive more than Peter suggested seven times. And we realized that in our relationship with God, we are the ones who have sinned against him far, far more than anyone has ever sinned against us. And that it's in worshiping him, a God who forgives enormous debts, that we become like him. That we are those then who are willing to forgive others. This week, I want to look a little bit more closely at how you go about doing that. What are the practical ways that we forgive? But before we do that, let me point out that Scripture talks about forgiveness in a couple different ways. I had a conversation with someone after the service two weeks ago, and he was struggling with the idea of how do you forgive someone who actively wants to keep treating you badly? And he was thinking of a relative, not someone in his immediate family, but a relative in his larger family network, someone who's fairly dysfunctional, someone who routinely damages others with what she says and does. Everyone in the family knows it. Everyone experiences it. But this person who's doing the damage doesn't really want to change. She wants relationships where she can do and say what she wants, and it's everybody else's job to give into her and to give her what she wants. So she wants relationships where she can damage and mistreat people repeatedly. Now, what does forgiveness mean with someone like that? That was my friend's question. With someone who doesn't see anything wrong or with someone who is unwilling to change? Actually, you can even broaden it a little bit here, right? Because you have people in your life who have hurt you who are no longer in your life. Maybe they moved away, they cut off ties with you, they may have passed away. What does, relation, what does forgiveness look like when the relationship is, when the other person is either unwilling, unable, unavailable to engage in any kind of restoration? 
Scripture argues that there's still a place for forgiveness. For instance, Mark chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And what Jesus is saying is that it is possible while you are praying, having this conversation with God, it is possible to have this thought creep up of something that someone did to you. So while you're talking to God, your brain at the same moment is talking to you and it's reminding you of bad things that people did or said to you. And in that moment, Jesus says, you have a decision. You can either hold on to that memory, you can review it, you can revisit it while you're trying to pray, or you can forgive. Not that you drop everything, pick up your phone, call someone, say, I forgive you, but that while you are still praying, you drop it from your mind. You let it go so that it doesn't influence your thoughts and so that it doesn't influence your prayers. Now, why would you do this? It's because how you engage that person has to be tied to how God engages you. Not that God only forgives you according to how well you forgive someone else, but you forgive this person inside your heart so that you're not trying to relate to God in a different way than you relate to other people. You're not trying to relate to him on the basis of his forgiveness for what you've done against him while you refuse to forgive someone else for what they've done to you. And in this sense, narrow sense, Jesus says there is a form of forgiveness that can take place. It's actually a little stronger. That has to take place. That has nothing at all to do with that other person. It happens solely and completely in your own heart, even when they're not around. I think in this way you can think about a kind of forgiveness that we could call attitudinal forgiveness. It's that sense of having a forgiving attitude with which you approach the world at large all the time. That you approach life with the attitude that you will not hold against others what they have done to you. You'll not sow bitterness into your mind and your heart. And that you are ready to engage someone, you're ready to engage anyone on the basis of forgiveness if it's a really big if if they want to be forgiven and so you forgive first inside your heart so that if someone else wants to restore the relationship then you're ready to do the hard work of restoration and again it all goes back to the gospel right you do this because jesus has already done the hard work of forgiving you and because he continues to relate to you on the basis of forgiveness. And since that's the kind of relationship that he builds with you after what you've done to him, you now work hard to be ready to build that kind of relationship with anyone else. It's one kind of forgiveness scripture talks about, attitudinal. Second kind, however, means that there's something um, that you're ready not simply to walk around with a forgiving attitude, but you're actually ready to engage that other person. You're ready to rebuild with the other person because the other person is also ready to rebuild. And so you might call this kind transactional forgiveness. It's the kind that happens between two people, the kind that gets transacted, asked for by one person, granted by another. Now, obviously, this kind of forgiveness you can't do on your own. But there's got to be some kind of partnership between the two people. Both of you are then understanding the nature of what has been done and the nature of what's being asked. 
that something was done that was wrong, some kind of sin, and the person who did the wrong sees it, owns it, can't make it go away on their own, and so they ask to be forgiven. That's the context for this parable that Pastor David read to us earlier. See, just in front of that parable, before Peter raises his objection, Jesus had been talking about how do we handle problems in the community of the people of God. We're going to have problems. Jesus assumes that. How do we handle it when we sin against each other, when we fail to live in a way that is best for each other? And Jesus says, chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what you need to do if that person doesn't listen to you. That's the context. That's in the background. That's the conversation that's taking place. How do we resolve conflicts within the community of the people of God? And it's out of that that Peter then asks, Lord, verse 21, how often will my brother sin against me? How many times do we have to do this? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Basically saying, Jesus, I hear that I have to take some responsibility when my brother sins against me. I need to go to them, point out the wrong. And if they listen, then I need to keep treating them like family. I need to forgive them. But Lord, seriously, how often do I have to do that? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven. Seventy-seven times. As many times, Peter, as they're willing to listen to you. This is what we talk about as transactional forgiveness something that transpires between two people that wipes out the evil that one did to the other. Now, to understand how we go about wiping that evil out, you have to see three things from Jesus' parable. First, we need to see the nature of sin. Second, we need to see the nature of forgiveness. And then third, we need to see the nature of forgiveness counterfeits, counterfeits of forgiveness. So the nature of sin today, the nature of forgiveness, and the nature of forgiveness counterfeits. First, in order to talk about forgiveness, Jesus tells a parable about money that is owed by one person to another, money that has to be repaid. And when he does that, he teaches us several things about the nature of sin. First, he teaches us that sin is about a specific wrong. Jesus puts numbers here on what's owed, 10,000 talents, 100 denarii. And he's telling us that what he considers to be wrong is specific. It's not vague. It's not a generalized, indefinable feeling. It's not a relativistic kind of thing. It's not something that some people think is bad, other people think is okay. It's not something where one person says, well, here's my truth, that was wrong. And the other person says, well, here's my truth, it was fine. Jesus is not talking here about something that's a matter of, of opinion. Instead, he's talking about something that is clear, definable, something that you can look at objectively and say, this thing that was said, this thing that was done is wrong. And it would be wrong regardless of who did it or in what era they did it. It's specific. That's the first thing he tells us about sin. Second, Jesus teaches us that sin incurs debt. When we sin against someone, there is something that we are taking away from that other person, something that should not have been taken away. In some way, we reduce another person's worth, their value as a human being,
because we have sinned against them. Their dignity is less. In some way, we treated them as less than fully human, less than is their due, less of an image of God as is their right, something that was given to them by their creator that no one has a right to take from them, something that has been taken from them and that now exists as a loss, as a debt between the two. Because it belonged to one person, it never should have been taken away, and therefore it's owed back to the person who lost it. So first, sin is specific. Second, it creates a debt that wasn't there before. And third, it's personal. It's inflicted by one person onto another. It's done by someone to someone else so that there is now a cost for someone. So when we talk about sin, we're talking here about something that is a specific wrong that incurs a debt that's personal. Now I want to take a brief aside here for a moment. Do you hear how this parable speaks about sin in a way that is radically different from how our society talks about things that are wrong? Words are so important. I'm going to take a little excursion here. Words are so important because they express a certain understanding of the world. Words express an understanding of what is wrong with the world and of what needs to change about it. Words are never neutral in that sense. We don't use them in a neutral kind of way. And so, for instance, our society doesn't use the language of sin. In general, we don't like it. Why? Sin is linked to an objective standard, a standard that is over top of all of us, an objective standard that we've broken. And as modern Westerners, we don't want anything or anyone impinging on our personal autonomy. We don't want anything restricting our individual liberties. We don't want an objective standard or anything that reminds us of an objective standard. And so we don't use the word sin to describe what someone has done wrong to someone else. That refusal to say sin is not neutral. It's embedded in an understanding of how we see the world. And yet we do see things all the time that are wrong between people. We have to say something, even as moderns, when someone does something wrong to another. And so often, how do we do that? Often we substitute the word hurt. And we say to each other, you hurt me when you did that. Now there is an important place to talk about hurt. Hurt is important. Why? Your feelings are important. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Why is that? Hurt is a feeling that comes along with something that's done to you that's wrong. It comes, it's a feeling that comes along with being sinned against. But hurt is not always an accurate indicator that someone has done something wrong, that someone's actually sinned. Our emotions, like every other part of us, don't always work right. After humanity's fall into sin, we can't always rely on what it is that we're feeling. And that means you can't always equate being wronged, being sinned against, with feeling hurt. There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. Let me unpack that a little bit more. Because the more that you think about it, the more you realize hurt is subjective. See, some of us are incredibly thick-skinned. And everything just sort of bounces off of us. 
Some of us can take an awful lot of verbal abuse, and it just doesn't seem to affect us. We don't feel hurt. We don't experience ourselves as having been hurt. But is it always the case that if we don't feel badly, that we weren't wronged? We weren't sinned against? You realize, of course not. You can still sin against someone even if they don't feel hurt by your sin. Why is that? Because sin is not measured by whether or not it produces certain results in your feelings. Sin is not measured by whether it produces a certain emotional reaction in you. Sin is not determined by the results that take place. Sin is in the thing itself, the thing that is done that is wrong, regardless of your reaction to that. You have sinned when you mistreat an image of God. Every time that you demean someone or take something of their image away from them, you sin against them. Whether they feel demeaned is not the question. That's important, but even more so, what matters is that you did demean them. And that means someone doesn't have to notice the presence of sin in order for it to be sin. They don't have to feel hurt for it to be wrong, for it to be sin. Let's say, for instance, you, got, you slander someone. You gossip about them. They don't know it. They go to their grave never knowing it. Therefore, what? They don't feel hurt. But you have definitely wronged them. You've sinned against them. Well, let's talk about parents. Parents, you and I do this all the time, right? We do it when we talk badly about our child to other adults but use vocabulary and concepts to do so that go over our child's head. So if you're holding your two-year-old and you say something like, oh, I can't wait for her to go back to school so that I can get my life back, has your child understood in that moment that you've said your life is worth more than hers? That her value as an image of God is not on the same plane as your value? that she's not worth sacrificing for. Did she understand that? Probably not. You're speaking above the level of her understanding. And in that sense, she's not experiencing hurt. But truly, you have sinned against her in a huge way in that moment. It's very possible to sin against someone without them registering hurt. The flip side of that is true also. It's probably harder for us to see in our modern world because of how the modern world teaches us to think. But it is possible for someone to feel hurt when no one has done anything wrong to them. See, some of us are thick-skinned, some of us are thin-skinned, and so we'll say to someone, when you said that to me, you hurt me. And we'll say that even when, objectively, the other person didn't do anything wrong. They weren't nasty, they weren't insulting, they weren't edgy, they weren't demeaning, they weren't trying to hurt weren't trying to harm. They simply what? They expressed an opinion we didn't like. An opinion that challenges the things that we do like and the things that we believe. Things about ourselves, about other people. Well, what's happening there in that moment? They said something that disagrees with us. That's clear. But disagreement alone is not wrong. It's not sin. 
in that sense, they haven't wronged us. They've expressed ideas that might have implications for us, implications that we don't like, implications that would require us to think differently, live differently, so we might feel upset. But if the other person did not take away something that God has given to us as our right for being made in his image, then there was no wrong and there is no sin. Which means then that that word hurt is not capturing what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 18. Please hear this. It took a long time to make this point. Words are not neutral. They express certain understands of how the world is and they express certain understands of how the world ought to be. So if you want to enter into the world the way that God sees it, you have to use words that align with the way that he uses them. Which means here that you have to understand he's talking about specific wrongs, objective evils that one person has done to another. Wrongs that rob that person of what God gave them as he made them in his image. That's point one, the nature of sin. Which teaches us then something about the nature of forgiveness. Back to Jesus' parable in Matthew 18. The king understands that his servant owes him a debt. Verse 23, the king wants to settle the account once it closed, wants the debt to no longer be there on the books, standing between the two of them. Servant, however, can't cover the debt. And so verse 26, he begs the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, which is utterly ridiculous. You remember from two weeks ago that we calculated his debt at somewhere in the range of $20 billion dollars. Be patient with me? How, how patient? How long would you have to wait for someone to work in order to pay you back $20 billion? Servant has no idea still what he's done to the king. And so he tries to build a relationship with the king out of obligation. This is what I owe to you, so I will pay you back what I took from you. I will work it off. I'll do things so that you and I are now good, so that you actually like me. Sounds an awful lot like how many of us interact with the Lord. We get convicted and we say, okay, I, I did something bad. It was really bad. I, I should not have done that, should not have said that. So I'll read my Bible today. Or if I already read my Bible, I'll read my Bible more. I'll give a little more money. I'll, I'll even serve in nursery. That's got to be worth a couple hundred million, right? Now we're good, right, God? We feel the debt, sort of. But our solution doesn't take into account the enormity of what we owe. And yet we know we can't just carry on like nothing happened. See, this is what relational debts do. They get in between people. And they cloud all the interactions. They confuse the relationship. The people who owe, they feel the weight of the debt over top of their head all the time. It affects and complicates every interaction. The people who are owed feel the injustice of what was taken away from them, what was due them. Let me give you a minor example. When I was about to start work on my dissertation, my advisor came to me and told me that every student starts with great expectations and promises of when they're going to turn things in on certain dates and then inevitably those dates slip. And he said, when that happens, very wise man, when that happens, the relationship changes. 
students will see their advisor coming. They know that they owe a chapter a couple months ago. And the student will turn down the hall and duck into a doorway just in order to avoid this person that they've had all these interactions and conversations with. Debts complicate relationships. It's not just grad students. How about when you and a housemate have a fight that doesn't get resolved? You know what that aftermath is like, right? You walk through the house without looking at each other in the eye. No one has to say anything, but now there's this unspoken agreement to stay in separate rooms. And then there are those awkward moments when you accidentally walk into the same room. And then you stare at the floor and you do this little dance to make sure that you don't look or touch the other person as you try to get away from them. And now everybody knows that there are these off-limits top, off topics that we just can't talk about if we are ever going to talk again. Debts complicate relationships. Everyone involved feels them. No one knows what to do once they're incurred. So how does the king handle the $20 billion debt? He cancels it. He absorbs it, absorbs the loss, absorbs the cost. He pays what the other one owes. Why? So that he can remove the debt. So that it no longer exists between the two of them so that now they are able to relate to each other without the debt adding weirdness to the relationship. So what then does it look like between you and someone else? How do you go about canceling a debt? It is really easy to say, really simple, and it's really hard to do. The person who is asking forgiveness has to acknowledge that he or she has done something without excusing themselves for it. Something that was wrong, something that took something away from the other person, something that they can't pay back, regardless of what they do. That's a really important point, by the way. On a human-to-human -human level, no one can ever pay back to someone else what was taken. There is a place for restitution, for paying to fix something that was broken, for paying to return something that was taken, but you realize you can never pay enough because it doesn't give back to the person who was sinned against the experience of not having been sinned against. When you sin against someone, you take away some of their innocence. You introduce them to evil in a different kind of way. Even if it's doing the exact same thing, you're taking them to a different level of evil than they've experienced before. You can't give them back the time that they spent in anxiety or worry or anger. You can't give them back the time that it took to work through their anxiety, worry, and anger. What you and I can take from each other in a moment, we can never fully restore to each other. And the person asking for forgiveness has to be aware of that. That's why they're asking the other person to cancel the debt, to forgive them. And so after they've confessed what they've done, the one person who sinned says, please forgive me for what I did to you. Now, obviously, there's process here and there's room for discussion. You go back and forth about what was done, about what's being asked. This is not an immediate, quick, fast thing. But at some point in transacted forgiveness, 
the other person turns to the one who sinned against them and says, I forgive you. And when they say, I forgive you, they're agreeing that, yes, this is the wrong that was done. They're agreeing, you can never pay back what was taken, and so I am making the decision to not relate to you on the basis of what you did to me. So essentially, when you grant forgiveness, you're making a promise to the person who sinned against you. You're promising not to bring up what they did and hold it over their head anymore. You're promising that you won't bring it up to them, but you're also promising not to bring it up to anybody else. I'm not going to go talking about you once I say I forgive you. And when you're tempted to remember to turn over what was done to you, you're promising that you won't let yourself keep thinking about it, that you won't bring it up to yourself. Now again, please remember, I said this two weeks ago. Granting forgiveness does not restore the relationship. It does not rebuild the trust that was broken. There's still work to be done. But when you forgive the debt, when you cancel the debt, the wrong that was done to you, that's the step that says restoration can now begin. It's a canceling of the negative in the past in order to build something positive in the present with the hope of a healthy future relationship. Jesus' understanding of sin and forgiveness pushes us to use words that line up with this notion of a specific personal debt that gets canceled. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. Notice here, I'm still being very particular with words. Why is that? Because just like with the word hurt, forgiveness language expresses your understanding of what broke between these two people. And it expresses what needs to happen in order to restore that brokenness. And when you're not careful with the words that you use, you're introducing a different system, a different way of understanding the world than the way that God understands it, a counterfeit system, ungodly system, to try to address the brokenness. Now that system that you introduce, it, it might be easier to work with in the moment, but none of them can ultimately end up in restoration. So point three, let me run through several attempts at forgiveness that are really counterfeits and show what happens if you try to use them. I was in the middle of a situation one time where I didn't do something at a church, not renewal, different church. I didn't do something that a group of people wanted me to do. I didn't sin, there was no, I, but I didn't do the thing that they wanted me to do and they were upset. They would have made a different decision than the one I made and they made sure that I knew that they weren't happy with me. One of our elders, a businessman from the church, said, you know, when stuff like that happens at work, I just tell people, I'm sorry if I upset you. Just say that, he says, and it takes away all their upsetness, and then you can just keep on going. Now, that was advice I did not take. Why? First, it's dishonest. He's using those words as a strategy to smooth over upset feelings. And he's not thinking in that moment, what does, he's not thinking about loving the other person. What does this other person need who is upset? So one, it's dishonest, but two, it's not an apology. It's not an acknowledgement that there was anything wrong that took place. I'm sorry if I upset you means what? It means I didn't mean to upset you. I, I wasn't trying 
to upset you. It was the last thing on my mind. Instead, I had good motives in what I was doing or saying. Can't think of anything I did wrong. Nothing to ask your forgiveness for. I'm sorry that you're upset. But because I didn't do anything wrong, I think what I did really was okay. I certainly wouldn't have been upset by what I said or did. In fact, I could have done the exact same thing with someone else. I actually, I can think of a lot of someone else's I could have done that with who would have been just fine. Would not have upset them. You just took it the wrong way. Whose fault is it? It's really your fault. So yeah, I'm sorry <clears throat> that you're so sensitive. That you can't handle a reasonable interaction without getting upset. So I'm sorry if I upset you. That's not an apology. It's a counterfeit. It's you apologizing for the other person being the real problem. That will not lead to restoration. And it's still a counterfeit if you shorten it to just, I'm sorry. You ever had someone try to apologize to you by saying, I'm sorry? What's wrong with that? In one sense, nothing's wrong with it as long as it's where you start, not stop where you start, not where you stop. As long as you keep going to please forgive me, it's appropriate to put I'm sorry on the front. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Why do you have to keep going? Because I'm sorry is an expression of what? It's an expression of sorrow, of sadness. That is not the same as a confession that I did something wrong, that I did something wrong to you and now I owe you. It's always appropriate to express sorrow, but it is not a full apology. Let's think about it this way. If I come over to your house and I trip over your dog, spill red wine all over your white carpet, I am very, very sorry. I'll help make sure the dog is okay. I'll mop up the carpet. I'll arrange to have it cleaned. I'm really very sorry, but I haven't sinned. It was an accident. And so there is no debt. There's nothing that I did to demean you. And so with integrity, I can't ask you to forgive me. But I had better let you know how deeply I am upset for you. Completely different, however, if I sin against you. Then there is debt. And if all I do is simply say, I'm sorry that there's debt. I'm sorry that something was taken away from you. What are you supposed to do with that? You can't say, it's okay, but I forgive you, because I haven't said I did anything wrong. I just said, I'm sad. Well, what are you supposed to say to, I'm sad? Well, I'm sad too. Of course we're sad. There's a debt here that shouldn't be. That'll make us sad. But if we're only sad, we are not yet on that road to restoration. We haven't gotten to forgiveness. When there is sin, like Jesus talks about sin, just saying I'm sorry is a counterfeit apology. And you can also counterfeit forgiveness. You can brush it all aside by saying, oh, it's okay. Ever have someone say that to you? You've sinned against them, you felt convicted that it was wrong, you go to them, you ask their forgiveness, and they say, it's okay. And you think, it's, it, it's okay, w what's okay? 
I did something wrong to you. What's okay about that? There's nothing okay about that. Where does that leave us now? Did you forgive me? Is there still something between us? It's another counterfeit because it leaves the person who's been sinned against not having to commit to doing the hard work of canceling the debt, to doing the hard work of forgiving. The words you use matter because they are informed by a larger understanding of what goes wrong between people and by a larger understanding of what has to happen in order to restore what's wrong. And when you see that, then you suddenly realize there's something that ties all these counterfeits together, these and all the others that I don't have time to talk about. And that is that none of them require the gospel in order to work. You can apologize for someone else, you can avoid owning what you did to someone else, and you can refuse to commit to forgiveness without having to rely on the gospel. You can say all of those things without having to experience your relationship with Christ again. These are things that anyone can do. These counterfeits, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay. Anyone can do that. I'm sad, I'm not forgiving you. Anyone can do that. These counterfeits don't need the power of God setting me free from all of my debts to Him so that I now delight to set others free from their debts to me. Which puts all the counterfeits into the same category as not forgiving in the first place. Remember from two weeks ago, we said fundamentally there are only two ways of relating to people. You will either relate to people out of a grace oriented worldview, where you extend yourself to someone on the basis of what they need, or you will relate to others by only giving them what they deserve, what they've earned from you by being good to you. And when they get too far beyond what they've earned, like needing to be forgiven more than seven times, then you cut them off. In a broken world with broken people, those are your only two options. Either you tap into unlimited resources that flow into you from the outside so that you don't need someone to be good to you in order for you to be good to them. You don't need that because you are so filled up with the love of a God who was good to you when you weren't good to him. So filled up with his power that you have energy to reach out to other people, to give them what they need. You'll either live that kind of life or you will limit your interactions with others based on what they've earned because you think that's actually going to give you a better life. And that means when the counterfeits are so appealing, when you don't want to do the hard work of forgiving, when all the objections just start screaming in your mind, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven for what he did to me. I don't feel like her apology is really sincere. If I forgive this time, he's just going to do it again. He'll take advantage of me. When there is nothing appealing about forgiving and the counterfeits call out to you, you have to plunge yourself back into the gospel. You have to experience the gospel again. You have to practice gospeling yourself if you're going to tap into enough resources to treat someone well when they've treated you badly. How do you gospel yourself? Some of us have no idea 
we've called ourselves Christians for decades. Raised in the church, we can remember a time when we made the decision to follow Jesus in our teens. We know how to be moral. We know how to be good. We know how to think the right thoughts about God. But we don't know how to tap into the gospel when we need it most. When we don't want to do what we know we need to do. How do you do that? How do you gospel yourself? The next time that you need to forgive and an objection rises up in your mind, take it and turn it around so that instead of saying it about someone else, make it about you and Christ. So if your mind objects and says, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven, remind yourself that Jesus did not decide to die for people who deserved his sacrifice. But he came to pay off the debts of people who didn't deserve it. Remind yourself that he didn't come to save good people. He came to save people who needed to be saved. Remind yourself that you didn't deserve his sacrifice for your debt. And that your debt against him was larger than anyone else's against you has ever been. Gospel yourself. In the moment that you don't want to be gracious to someone else, relive an experience of grace with your God. Or if your mind says, yeah, but I, I don't think she's really sincere in asking for forgiveness. Remind yourself that Jesus doesn't forgive on the basis of our sincerity. Because if he did, none of us would be forgiven. Who can say that they see their debt like God sees it? That they feel the full weight of having sinned against an infinite, glorious, majestic, holy God. Who understands the gravity of being separated from him forever? The gravity of being separated from the source of all life and beauty and goodness. Who is so thoroughly distraught at that idea that they're, they are fully, completely, infinitely sincere in asking an infinite God's forgiveness? No one. Jesus doesn't forgive us on the basis of how well we repent, on the basis of our sincerity. He forgives us on the basis of his pity on us who are in debt to him. You're forgiven because of his mercy, not because of how good you are at asking for it. Or if your mind tells you, but if I forgive this time, he'll just do it again, take advantage of me. Then remind yourself that Jesus did not decide to stay in heaven so that he could keep himself from being taken advantage of. Remind yourself he could have. He could have chosen to stay safe, safely tucked away from anyone who would sin against him, but he came to earth instead where he was mistreated while he lived and turned over to a horrible death where he refused to use his power to protect himself so that he could use all of his power to protect you eternally. You who haven't sinned against him once or twice or seven times, but over and over and over. He chose to use all of his infinite advantages to protect you from having to pay your debt back to God, your infinite $20 billion debt, which would have cost you an eternity to pay. 
He protected you from that by wiping out that debt, canceling it, paying it himself so that you and he could be restored, <laughs> so that you could have a friendship with him without debt in the middle, so that you can now have his spirit flowing in you, opening your heart to want to forgive. When it's too hard to forgive, you've forgotten the gospel again. Forgotten what it's like to be loved beyond your wildest dreams. What do you do? Go back. Experience that again. Don't just do some mental gymnastics. Theology does what? It points to him, but it isn't a substitute for him. Thinking about God is not the same as actually interacting with him. Gospeling yourself starts by thinking correctly. Meditating on how good he is, but then it moves to an actual encounter with him. Think well about your objections, but then engage him, talk to him, ask him to love you. Ask him to love you in such a way that you know that he loves you. Experience him. And then you will find not only the power, but also the desire to give to someone else what he has so kindly given to you. Lord Jesus, our vision of you is way too small. Our vision of ourselves is much too great. We think far too well of ourselves and far too little of you. Transform us. Lord, come and love us. You've given us illustrations of prayers in the scripture where we are invited to cry out to you to fill us because we need you. Lord, if you do not, there's no power in us. We will be the same people that we, when we leave as when we came in. Lord, we're looking for a miracle for you to enter in and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Lord, and then release us to praise and worship you in Jesus' name.